Chapter 8 of the Pianoforte Sonata by John South Shedlock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Contemporaries of Beethoven. 1. Weber. The two greatest contemporaries of Beethoven were, undoubtedly, Karl Maria von Weber and Franz Schubert, and both wrote pianoforte sonatas. Many other composers of that period, some of them possessed of considerable talent, devoted themselves to that branch of musical literature. Steibelt, 1764-1823, Werfel, 1772-1812, J.B. Kramer, 1771-1858, J.N. Hummel, 1778-1837, F.W.M. Kalkbrenner, 1788-1849, and others. Of these, the first three may be named sonata-makers. The number which they produced is positively alarming, but it is some consolidation to think that a knowledge of their works is not of essential importance. Steibelt's sonata in E-flat, dedicated to Madame Bonaparte, was given one to the popular concerts in 1860, and Werfel's Ne Plus Ultra sonata, several times between 1859 and 1873, not one, however, of the 105 said to have been written by J.B. Kramer has ever been heard there. Footnote. The finale of a sonata in A-flat by Kramer, one of the three dedicated to Haydn, is said to have suggested to Beethoven the finale of his sonata in A-flat, Opus 26. Dr. Eric Preiger, who has recently published a facsimile of the autograph of Beethoven's sonata, in his preface quotes some passages from the Kramer finale, which certainly seem to show that the Bond master was to some extent influenced by his predecessor. Here is the second of the three passages quoted. End of footnotes. Most of these works justly merit the oblivion into which they have fallen. Some are quite second or even third rate, others were written merely as showpieces. Footnote. Werfel's Ne Plus Ultra Sonata would have long been forgotten but for Dussek's Plus Ultra. See chapter on predecessors of Beethoven. End of footnote and are now, of course, utterly out of date, and many were written for educational purposes, or to suit popular taste, sonatas containing variations on national and favourite airs, light rondos, etc. Footnote. In Steibelt's two sonatas, Opus 62, for instance, the airs If a Body Meet a Body, Jesse McFarlane and La Chranteuse, transcriber's note, so in original, probably should be Chartreuse, are introduced. In his Opus 40, we find the Chalcedonian Beauty, the Maid of Selma, Twas Within a Mile of Edinburgh Town, and Life Let Us Cherish. Werfel's sonatas, Opus 35-38, also contain Scotch airs, and his Nuplus Ultra has variations on Life Let Us Cherish. End of footnotes. Kramer's studies have achieved worldwide reputation, and, as music, they are often interesting. Also in his sonatas are to be found many serious, well-written movements. Musical taste has, however, so changed since the rise of the Romantic school that it is doubtful whether they would be now acceptable even as teaching pieces. 
Hummel's few sonatas have suffered at the hand of time, but though the music be mechanical and therefore cold, there is much to interest pianists in the two sonatas in F-sharp minor, opus 81, and D major, opus 106. These were written after the composer's appointment at Weimar in 1820. His two early sonatas, opus 13 in E-flat and opus 20 dedicated to Haydn, are not easy, yet not so difficult as the two just mentioned. Steibelt and Werfel both measured themselves with Beethoven in the art of improvisation. The former was so ignominiously defeated that he never ventured to meet his rival again. Werfel, however, fared better. With his long fingers he could accomplish wonders on the instrument, but only so far as technique was concerned did he surpass Beethoven. Karl Maria von Weber, 1786-1826, in early youth studied the pianoforte under two able court organists, J.P. Huschkel, footnote, 1773-1853, Count Organist at Helberghausen, End of footnote, and J. N. Kalker, footnote, seventeen sixty six to eighteen twenty six, court organist at Freising, end of footnote, both of whom he always held in grateful remembrance. Under the direction of the latter, he wrote some pianoforte sonatas, which, according to the statement of his son and biographer, M. M. von Weber, were accidentally destroyed. Later on, he studied under Vogler and other masters. He became a famous pianist and at Berlin in 1812 composed his first sonata in C, opus 24. Number 2 in A flat, opus 39, was commenced at Prague in 1814 and completed at Berlin in 1816. Number 3 in D minor, opus 49, was also written at Berlin and in the same year. Number 4 in E minor, opus 70, occupied the composer between the years 1819 and 1822. It was written at Hauterwitz near Dresden, during the time he was at work on his opera Euryantha. Weber and Schubert are both classed as contemporaries of Beethoven, yet the latter was also their predecessor. Of Schubert we shall speak presently. As regards Weber, it should be remembered that before he had written his sonata in C, opus 24, Beethoven had already published Les Adieux, opus 81a. The individuality of the composer of Die Freischutz was, however, so strong that we meet with no direct traces of the influence of Beethoven in his pianoforte music. The Weber sonatas have been described by Mr. P. Spitter as fantasias in sonata form, and this admirably expresses the character of these works. Weber followed the custom of his day in writing sonatas, but it seems as though he would have accomplished still greater things had he given full rein to his imagination and allowed subject matter to determine form. Like his great contemporaries of whom we have next to speak, Weber, in spite of Vogler's teaching, was not a strong contrapuntist. He relied chiefly upon melody, harmonic effects and strong contrasts. His romantic themes, his picturesque colouring enchant the ear and the poetry and passion of his pianoforte music both intensified by grand technique stir one soul to its very depths yet the works are of the fantasia rather than of the sonata order we have the letter rather than the true spirit of a sonata 
Place side by side Weber's Sonata in A-flat, the greatest of the four, with Beethoven's D minor or Appassionata, and the difference will be at once felt. In the latter there is a latent power which is wanting in the former. It seems as if one could never sound the depths of Beethoven's music. Fresh study reveals new beauties, new details, the relation of the parts to the whole, not only of the sections of a movement, but of the movements into C. And, therefore, the unity of the whole becomes more evident. We must not be understood to mean that Weber worked without plan, or even careful thought, but merely that the organic structure of his sonatas is far less closely knit than in those of the Bonn master. There is contrast rather than concatenation of ideas, outward show rather than inner substance. The slow movements, with exception of those of the first and second sonatas, which have somewhat of a dramatic character, and finales are satisfactory per se as music. The former have charm, refinement, the latter elegance, piquancy, brilliancy. Now, in these sonatas, the opening movements seem like the commencements of some tragedy. In number two, there is nobility mixed with pathos. In number three, fierce passion. And in number four, still passion, albeit of a tenderer, more melancholy kind. But in the finales, it is though we had passed from the tragedy of the stage to the melodrama, or frivolity of the drawing room. They offer, it is true, strong contrast, yet not of the right sort, not that to which Beethoven has accustomed us. Throughout the four sonatas we detect the hand of a great pianist. In the first, the element of virtuosity predominates. The first, and especially the last movement, the so-called perpetuum mobile, are showpieces, though of a high order. In the other sonatas, the same element exists, yet it seldom obtrudes itself. The composer is merely using, to the full, the rich means at his command to express his luxuriant and poetical thoughts. In his writing for the instrument, Weber recalls Dussek, the Dussek of the Retro à Paris and Invocation sonatas. The earlier master was also a great pianist and filled with the spirit of romance. Still, he lacked the force and fire of Weber. Then again, Dussek, in early manhood, passed through the classical crucible, whereas Weber was born and bred very much à la bohémienne. He developed from within rather from without. It is easier to criticise than to create. If we cannot place the sonatas of Weber on the same high level as those of Beethoven, we may at least say that they take very high rank. Also, that in the hands of a great pianist they are certain to produce powerful impression. 2. Schubert The other great contemporary of Beethoven was Franz Schubert, born in 1797, the year in which the former published his sonata in E-flat, Opus 7. Then again, Schubert's earliest pianoforte sonata was composed in February 1815, while Beethoven's sonata in A, Opus 101, was produced at a concert only one year later, 16th of February 1816. It is well to remember these dates, by which we perceive that Beethoven had written 27 of his 32 sonatas before Schubert commenced composing works of this kind. But though here and there the influence of the Bonn master may be felt in Schubert, the individuality of the latter was so strong that we regard him as an independent contemporary. The influence of Haydn and Mozart, plus his own mighty genius, seems almost sufficient to account for Schubert's music. 
the new edition of the composer's works published by messrs breitkopf and hartel contains fifteen sonatas for pianoforte solo the first four number one in e eighteen fifteen number two in c eighteen fifteen number three in a flat eighteen seventeen and number four in e minor eighteen seventeen had hitherto only been known by name in following the career of a great composer his first efforts however humble however incomplete are of interest but from a purely musical point of view the minuets of two and three are the most attractive portions of these sonatas we catch them in glimpses of that freshness and romantic beauty which characterize schubert's later productions in moments of strong inspiration schubert worked wonders yet the lack of regular and severe study often makes itself felt though colouring may enhance counterpoint it will not serve as a substitute for it then there is at times monotony of rhythm and this to a great extent was the result of little practice in the art of combining melodies while on the subject of schubert's failings we may as well complete the catalogue in the later sonatas we meet with diffuseness and sometimes a stroke of genius is followed by music which at any rate for schubert is commonplace it seems presumption to weigh the composer in critical balances and to find him wanting but he stands here side by side with beethoven and the contrast between the two men forces itself on our notice both were richly endowed by nature by training and the power of self-criticism which the latter brings with it beethoven was able to make the most of his gifts schubert on the other hand by the very lavish display which he sometimes made actually weakened them there is no page of musical history more touching than the one which records how the composer after having written wonderful songs grand symphonies and other works too numerous to mention made arrangements to study with s sector one of the most eminent theorists of the day the composer paid the latter a visit on the fourth of november eighteen twenty eight but within a fortnight schubert was no longer in the land of the living when too late he seems to have made the discovery which perhaps his very wealth of inspiration had hidden from him up to that moment namely that discipline strengthens genius one may point out faults in schubert's artworks yet his melodies and harmonies are so bewitching his music altogether so full of spontaneity and inspiration that for the time being one is spellbound schumann was fairly right when he described schubert's lengths as heavenly three more sonatas were produced in eighteen seventeen the first in the unusual key of b major and here we find a marked advance in conception and execution it opens with an allegro the total effect of which however is not satisfactory the principal theme has dramatic power and what follows has lyrical charm but the development section is disappointing the adagio seems like an arrangement of a lovely symphonic movement the orchestra and not the pianoforte must have been the composer's mind when he penned it the lively scherzo with its quiet trio is a little gem the clear-cut concise form of such movements saved schubert from all danger of diffuseness and in them as mozart remarked to the emperor joseph who complained of the number of notes in his opera die entferung there are just as many as are necessary the sonata in a minor opus 164 which consists of three movements is short and delightful from beginning to end in the opening allegro the second subject occurs by way of exception in the major key of the submediant there is much to admire in the third in e flat especially the minuet and trio yet the music is not pure schubert 
About six years elapsed between this and the next sonata in A minor (1823). Schubert had already written his B minor symphony, and though the first two movements of the sonata will not compare with those of the former in loftiness of conception, there is a certain kinship between the two works. In both there are fitful gusts of passion, a feeling of awe, and a tone of sadness which tells of disappointed hopes, of lost illusions. The finale, though fine, stands on a lower level. During the years 1825 to 26, Schubert wrote, besides one in A major, opus 120, three magnificent sonatas, one in A minor, dedicated to the Archduke Rudolf, opus 42, another in D, opus 53, and a third in G, opus 78. In these three works we have the composer's ripest efforts. The first movement of the first, in A minor, is well-nigh perfect. That opening phrase... haunts one like a sad dream, and the development section, long though not monotonous, is full of it. Without sacrificing its individuality, Schubert has here caught something of Beethoven's peculiar method of treating a theme, that is, of evolving new phrases from its various sections. The coda, again, has penetrating power, and the fierce concluding phrase sounds like the passionate resistance of a proud artist to the stern degrees of fate. The tender melody and delicate variations of the andante, the bolcherzo with its soft trio, and the energetic finale are all exceedingly interesting, yet they do not affect us like the first movement, in which lies not only the majesty, but the mystery of genius. The sonata in D has a vigorous opening allegro, a long, lovely slow movement, a crisp scherzo, but a peculiar finale, one which Schumann qualifies as comical. The sonata in G contains some of the composer's most charming, characteristic music. The opening Moderato e Cantabile is a tone poem of touching pathos. The sad principal theme is supported by such soft, tender harmonies that its very sadness charms. In the development section it assumes a different character. Melancholy gives place to passion, at times fierce, then calm returns. The coda is one of the most fascinating ever penned by Schubert, the slow movement in menuetto form worthy companions, but with the finale the composer breaks the spell. Schumann says, keep away from it, it has no imagination, no enigma to solve. The last three sonatas, in C minor, A and B flat, were composed in September 1828, not three months before the death of the composer. In the opening theme of number two, determination and confidence are expressed, while in the Scherzo and Rondo there is even sunshine, though now and again black clouds flit across the scene. But in the Adagio, and in all the movements of the other two sonatas, the mood is either one of sadness, more or less intense, dark despair, or fierce frenzy. Music can express both joy and sorrow, though the latter seems more congenial to it. Mournful strains are an echo, as it were, of the still sad music of humanity. Grief, too, sharpens the imagination, and music produced under its influence stirs a sensitive soul more powerfully than the brightest, merriest sounds. But these three sonatas, though they contain wonderful thoughts and some of Schubert's grandest and most delicate harmonic colouring, fall short of perfection. 
they are too long, not because they cover so many pages, but because there is a lack of balance. At times, indeed, the composer seems to lose all sense of proportion. Then, again, the weakness of Schubert in the art of development is specially felt. The noble themes on the whole lose rather than gain by the loose, monotonous and in some places even trivial treatment to which they are subjected. And what is more fateful than a lack of gradation of interest? In a truly great work of art, be it poem, tragedy, sonata or symphony, the author carries his readers or audience along with him from one point to another. He gives no time for rest or reflection, and when he has worked them up to the highest pitch, he stops, and there is an awakening, as it were, from some wonderful dream. If afterwards the work be analysed, the pains with which it was built up can be traced. The powerful effect which it produced will be found due, not alone to the creative power, the imagination of the author, but also to his dialectic skill and to his critical faculty. It is all very well to talk of great works as the fruits of hot inspiration and not of cold intellect. A masterpiece is the outcome of both. The one provides the material, the other shapes it. Schubert was an inspired composer, but most of his works, especially those of large compass, show that he was mastered by moods, not that he was a master of them. It may be said that many who can appreciate beautiful music have not the bump of intellect strongly developed, and would not therefore be affected by any such shortcomings that they would simply enjoy the music. That is very likely, but here we are analysing and comparing, and neither the beauty nor even grandeur of the music, nor the effect which it might produce on certain minds concerns us. There are many persons who have had no technical training, but who possess a true sense of order, proportion and gradation, and such instinctively feel that Schubert's sonatas, in spite of their many striking qualities, are not so great as those of Beethoven. We have referred more than once to the popular concert catalogue, which is a very fair thermometer of public taste. One can see how seldom the Schubert sonatas are performed in comparison with those of his great contemporary. But to refer specially to the last three sonatas now under notice, the one in B-flat, number three, was played by Mr. Leonard Borwick, it is true, on the 3rd of February, 1894, but the previous date of performance was 16th of January, 1882, number two, in A, was last given in 1882, and number one has not been heard since 1879. The Allegro of the C minor sonata opens with a bold theme, and an energetic transition passage leads to the dominant of the relative major key. Of the soft second theme, Schubert seems so fond that he is loath to quit it. He repeats it in varied form, and still after that it is heard in minor. This unnecessarily lengthens the exposition section, which, in addition, has the repeat mark. The development section is rather vague. But the coda is impressive. The long descending phrase and the sad repeated minor chords at the close suggest exhaustion after a fierce conflict. The theme of the adagio in A-flat, partly inspired by Beethoven, is noble and full of tender, regretful feeling. The opening and close of the movement are the finest portions. The minuet and trio are effective, but the final allegro is hopelessly long and by no means equal to the rest of the work. The first movement of the sonata in A has a characteristic principal theme, and one in the dominant key of bewitching beauty. 
The coda gives a last reminiscence of the opening theme, but its almost defiant character has vanished away, for it is now played pianissimo. Schubert, in the importance of his codas, recalls Beethoven. Each, however, made it serve a different purpose. The latter, at any rate in his allegro movements, gathers together his strength as if for one last supreme effort. Schubert, on the other hand, seems rather as if his strength was spent and as if he could only give a faint echo of his leading theme. The coda of the first movement of the sonata in A minor, opus 42, offers, however, one striking exception. The Adantino and Scherzo of the A sonata are well-nigh perfect, but the rondo, in spite of much that is charming, is of inferior quality and of irritating length. The third sonata in B-flat, the last of the series, the Sonatestimon, as von Lenz said of Beethoven's Opus 111, has wonderful movements, yet it also contains lengths which even Schumann would have scarcely ventured to style heavenly. We refer particularly to the first and last movements, the Adante and Scherzo are beyond criticism. These sonatas were written as Schubert was about to enter the valley of the shadow of death. His spirit was still strong, but his flesh must have been weak. To turn away from them on account of any imperfections would be to lose some of Schubert's loftiest thoughts, some of his choicest tone painting. End of chapter 8 Recording by Jordan Watts, Oxfordshire